This is Jackman Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's podcast, we are examining U.S.-Russia relations as they are, as they are portrayed, and what they represent or suggest. We begin with Seth Ackerman, executive editor of Jacobin Magazine, who has an article called The Expressive Function of the Russia Freakout that skewers much of what is regularly touted by mainstream media and asks why there's such a divergence between the substance and fact of U.S.-Russia policy and what the media obsession and hysteria over the supposed Russian threat represents. We then talk to Russia expert Hillel Tikhtin, editor of Critique, who asks why the U.S. has been so harsh on Russia when Putin represents a Christian capitalist, if authoritarian, politics. We'll get his take on what is behind making Russia our arch enemy once again, now that it no longer pretends to be communist and is indeed a fraction of what it was industrially in terms of population and its strength. All this on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And on today's program, we're going to look at the U.S.-Russian relations as they are, as they're portrayed, and what they really represent or even suggest. Seth Ackerman has a great piece that appeared in Jacobin on July 19th. That's Jacobin Mag Online. And it's called The Expressive Function of the Russia Freakout. And it raises key critical points that are missing from most of what passes as reporting on U.S.-Russian relations. And indeed, Seth Ackerman skewers much of the received wisdom and the so-called truths and facts that are regularly touted by mainstream media. And he dares to ask why there's such a divergence between the substance and the facts of U.S.-Russia policy and the media obsession and hysteria even over the threat Russia supposedly represents. So why the freak out? So we're going to get Seth's analysis. And I should just say that Seth Ackerman is the executive editor of Jacobin Magazine. When he was an infant, he started writing at Harper's. And then also for In These Times, he was also a media critic at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. And it's his first time here. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Seth Ackerman. Thanks, Susie. It's great to be here. Great. I'm really happy to have you. So maybe we should just begin. First, I want to congratulate you on this article, and it's titled The Expressive Function of the Russia Freakout. And I and we'll get to why you decided to call it that, because you say so in the article. But maybe you could just introduce for our audience the main points which basically question that freakout over the ostensible collaboration and meddling, and maybe just say what it's about and what the actual policy actually is. Over the last few weeks, obviously, there's been a huge amount of commentary from uh, liberals and Democrats who are talking in terms of pretty overheated terms about uh, treason, about Trump being a puppet or an asset of the Kremlin about how this represents a national crisis and a threat to our republic and our way of life, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, some of us on the left have expressed a little bit of skepticism about that sort of thing. And when we do, the response tends to be that we're not taking the Russia issue seriously. The the meddling that uh, apparently took place, the packed emails that were leaked on the Internet and so on, I think the main point that I wanted to make in that piece is that if you're actually concerned about 
the threat of the kind that the Mueller investigation has been um, uh, uncovering or alleging, uh, then there are some straightforward, relatively practical steps that you would think you would be most prioritizing in, in terms of what actually needs to be done. You know, some basic issues of uh, cybersecurity and securing the uh, electoral registers, you know, the voting registries, and, and uh, pretty straightforward uh, administrative and, uh, and security steps like that. But that doesn't really seem to be at the root of the concern uh, or at the root of the, of the panic among these people who are constantly talking about Russia. Uh, they don't talk very much about the things that the United States ought to do. There's a lot of rhetoric about the incredible urgency of this issue. But what exactly it's so urgent to do is almost never spelled out. Right. And that's um, I'm glad you laid that out, Seth, because what you do in this article is you actually start by showing that, first of all, this is in reaction to the what everybody now characterizes as a terrible summit in Helsinki between uh, Trump and Putin, where Trump appeared to just sell the store and to take Putin's word over that of American intelligence agencies. But what you do in this article, and I'd like you to kind of lay it out, is to show that the policies that Trump has put forward toward Russia have actually been substantially tougher than Obama's. And whatever differences there might have been with Obama expressed by Republicans and Democrats, he was not seen as selling out to Putin, that is Obama. So uh, maybe we could just start with that. Yeah, well, I mean, Trump has obviously surrounded himself and his foreign policy team with a series of very hawkish Republican foreign policy experts. So you have John Bolton as the national security advisor. You have Mike Pompeo as the secretary of state. Dan Coats as the national intelligence director. These are people who for years have, uh, in some cases, when they've worked in Congress, in Bolton's case, he's where he worked in the Bush junior administration. For years, they have expressed consistent uh, hawkish attitudes and advocated hawkish policies against Russia. They have portrayed Russia and Putin personally as a great threat. Those are the people that Donald Trump chose to be his national security and diplomatic advisors. And as you might expect, those people have gotten to work since they've been in office, putting in place some very hawkish and tough policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. So, for example, it was only under Trump that the United States actually started giving lethal military aid to the Ukrainian forces that are defending against or resisting against uh, Russian encroachment. And of all of the issues on the U.S.-Russian relations agenda, that's probably the one that for Putin is absolutely the most critical, the most vital security interest as he perceives it. And on that point, the Trump administration has gone further than any administration before. In fact, on the whole gamut of issues, there was a quote recently from a, an expert at the Atlantic Council, which is mm -hmm. you know, a, basically a NATO-oriented uh, think tank. It's uh, a think tank that's basically all about how to contain Russia, um, a very establishment-type organization, where the expert was quoted as saying, you know, basically, despite the rhetoric, Donald Trump is waging the most tough anti-Russia foreign policy of any president since the end of the Cold War. So the cognitive dissonance that it takes yeah. to, to assimilate <clears throat> those facts with the claims that are constantly being made that Trump is not just carrying out a, a policy that's not tough enough on Putin, but actually is like a puppet of Putin, it doesn't make any sense at all. 
even if he were a puppet, by the way, it's clear that he's not in control of his own foreign policy. Uh, <laughs> or maybe and, even and remembers case, it's it. It's not clear exactly why Putin would really want Donald Trump as his puppet. He would have done better to pick somebody else. Right. I want to go further on this, but the point that you brought up just prior to this was that given the level of hysteria, and we'll ask you what you think that's about afterwards, but that you're saying that policymakers in terms of securing, let's say, election machines or cracking down on cyber hacking across the country, they're greeting Russia's ostensible intervention with what would, I guess, be like a collective yawn, as you intimate in your article in Jacobin Magazine. And on the other hand, you also cite that a Gallup poll showed that most Americans see Russia's apparent intervention in the United States and its meddling as really low on their list of priorities. So maybe you could just talk a little bit more about what you think are the reasons behind this intense reaction, despite the points that you've already made about how hard Trump's actually been or the Trump administration has been on Putin and Russia? Well, I think that there's probably two things going on at once, and it's not always easy to kind of disentangle them and discern, you know, which one is is operative at a given moment or with a given person. But I think one aspect of it is a purely kind of strategic gambit where, you know, it makes political sense if Trump is your political opposition to flog whatever scandal you think might stick to him or might damage him politically. So that's a kind of an obvious play. As you mentioned, and as I've discussed a little bit in my piece, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a hugely promising avenue for like politically uh, weakening Trump, at least not so far, because this story is something that has absolutely obsessed the kind of pundit class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be fair, it's a pretty kind of weird and fascinating story. So I, it's not so much that, but beyond the pundit class out in the country, there's almost no interest in this stuff. So that strategic aspect of it is definitely one side of it. And then I think there's also, at a deeper level, uh, kind of a a sincere emotional response on the part of a lot of Democrats who feel shocked and disoriented by Trump's election and by every word that comes out of his mouth is yet another affront to them. And he sort of defiles the dignity of the office of the presidency, as many liberals see it, especially liberals who have a kind of a and this is a lot of them, have a kind of a gauzy West Wing kind of um, image of, like, uh, you know, our good leaders and our great, you know, august traditions of presidents who are dignified and wise and et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And that's obviously a rather sanitized understanding of what American presidents and political leadership has been. But for Trump to be in that office right now, I think, is like a real emotional shock for them in a way that's similar, that's not so different from what the right experienced under Obama. There's a feeling that I think that a lot of liberals have that they don't recognize their country anymore, that if if this is a country that could have elected Trump, then something clearly has been, somebody has been jiggering with the mechanism and something went wrong. (laughs) Again, I think that that too is something that I, I think requires a lot of like historical amnesia to take that attitude. But if you have that attitude, and then if you have these bits of evidence that have come out that show that the Russians apparently were, you know, running these Twitter bots during the election, leaking DNC emails, and favored Trump, or at least thought that supporting him would cause some chaos or something, then it becomes very easy to, you know, connect the dots and decide that really all of this, none of this was just the result of Americans 
who are in a you know social and economic crisis for the last many years, going through a kind of a kind of political meltdown that's been going on for a number of years. You know, with the Tea Party, the debt crises, you know, near default on Treasury debt. You know, all these crazy things that have been going on politically for a long time. Instead of it being the Trump phenomenon coming from those domestic sources, it's very tempting to say, well, actually, this is all just the result of foreign meddling and by some sinister force overseas. And very, like I said, it's quite similar to what happened with the right wing, where they were shocked that a black guy, you know, with Hussein in his name, could be elected president. So obviously, this must be some sort of conspiracy that foreigners uh, or some there's some kind of foreign illegitimate entities that Obama is the product of. But you know, in, in neither case are these things true. People, they're the product of people's unwillingness to grapple the way the United States has changed and the, the real serious problems that our country has on its own. So, as, as for like the reality of whatever the threat is from Russia, you know, if the threat is that they might hack emails and leak them, or go on Twitter and, and pretend to be you know politicized people trying to persuade voters to change their vote then it seems to me like those are problems that are manageable and can be dealt with, mainly by doing things here at home, by strengthening our own defenses against those kinds of things. And raising a kind of hysteria about the great threat from Russia can only you know, create the kind of atmosphere that leads to bad things, even to the point of war. This is all very good. And you say in your article, I mean, you talk about the expressive function rather than the instrumental function of this freak out, right, of this hysteria. And I'd like you to, you know, go into that a little bit deeper. But obviously, and you've mentioned it, Seth Ackerman, the question of Russian meddling first came up at the time of the Democratic Party convention. And as we all know, Podesta's emails were leaked. He had incredibly weak, they had very weak uh, cyber protections, apparently his password was something like one, two, three, four, five. It wouldn't take a state, you know, a sophisticated state to hack into those emails, given how lax the security was, you know, but it seems that it's been pushed very hard, not just by Clinton, but by the uh, Democratic leadership to deflect blame from, you know, the election loss and the weakness of her candidacy. And they've taken it up and pushed it ever since Trump, you know, has been in power as a central part of their perspective. So do you see this, by the way? I mean, you mentioned this sort of way that they freaked out, that the Republicans freaked out over Obama. But there's been a kind of real interesting switcheroo in the sense that now the Democrats have gone back to their hard Cold War liberal stance, more hawkish than thou, anti-Russia and Russia's the enemy. And, and the hysteria that you see on MSNBC or Bill Maher and other places, you know, just amplifies that beyond, you know, as you show in your article, any real reason or policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was actually a report, well, there, there was a, a book that came out about the Clinton campaign by a bunch of uh, reporters for, um, I guess, Politico, maybe? I, I don't remember. But in any case, they had kind of, you know, inside access to the Clinton campaign, and they, they reported that, just like you, you're um, alluding to, right after the election, you know, Clinton's advisors got together and decided that it was a priority for them to really push the narrative that this well, there's something not on the up and up about Trump's victory and that Russia was to blame. So it, it's true. It's a way not only to kind of make meaning or make sense out of the alarming trends, the ways in which the, the country is changing, but it's also an excellent way for the Democratic leadership to deflect blame for that defeat, which, of course, it's important to remember that all through Clinton's primary campaign against Bernie Sanders, 
uh, the central argument beyond all the other ones for why she and her supporters thought that people should, the Democrats should support Hillary Clinton and not Sanders, was that she could win. Right. She's and- the one that she's the one who could win against Trump. And so the defeat there was a, a real legitimacy crisis for her and for the Democratic leadership in general. So that's yet another reason why you would expect them to grasp onto this Russia story. When you mentioned the expressive function, I was referring, I, yeah, I called it the expressive function of the Russia freakout because it was an allusion to uh, like a famous law review article by Cass Sunstein where he talks about the expressive function of the law. So he says, you know, there's sometimes when laws exist, not really so much to control people's behavior, but just to kind of make a statement. And that's supposed to kind of set a tone for society as a whole. And I think that that is a similar or there's an analogous thing going on with a lot of this hysteria about Russia, that it's a way of expressing or positing the idea that Trump is the product not of domestic forces, but of some kind of sinister foreign conspiracy. Well, we've seen that before in many other different societies when you get somebody who just is almost too incredible or too unbelievable, right, to explain. So it has to be some alien force. But I wanted to ask, because you mentioned it before, and it's in your article as well, that the Russia meddling is really low on most people's priorities in terms of what they're hoping, you know, that policy will be about. And that, you know, given that the Democrats have pounced on it, and this is really a question too, you know, MSNBC especially has made this Russian Putin Trump ostensible collaboration their main focus. It's all Russia all the time. And they've increased the level of hysteria in tandem with the Democratic Party leadership. I don't know if, uh, you know, who's feeding whom on this one, but, and that's worthy of reflection. But um, maybe you could speak first to the issue of the real economic and social issues that are roiling the population, you know, not least the collapse of the welfare state and the significant attacks on women uh, and minorities, immigrants, and all the rest of that from the party's leadership and mainstream, and how that isn't, you know, what is being discussed, but what is being discussed is Russia all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, and there has been for, you know, at least a a decade, a sense among a a large number of Americans that uh, certain promises that uh, used to be taken for granted as as what you would expect to have, the kind of life you would expect to have as an American, or at least as a middle-class American, are um, are no longer are no longer things you could take for granted. There's a lot of people who are worried that uh, for, that their kids uh, won't have the same kind of life chances or living standards that they themselves have. A lot of people who are afraid about their own kind of precarious class standing being undermined and, and falling into some sort of worse situation than they'd ever ex- expected to, to be in. And, you know, with the industrialization and with the utter stagnation of incomes for, for the large majority of the population and you know, the opioid epidemic, I mean, there's a real serious economic and social crisis going on in this country. And it's been also uh, reflected, partly reflected, partly just in parallel with the political crisis uh, over the last few decades where this, you know, there's an increasing polarization between the parties, but there's also a sense by most much of the electorate that what goes on in politics is totally divorced from the, the needs and interests of ordinary people. It's important to remember that as much as people have become super mobilized around politics, especially in reaction to Trump on both sides, in the 2014, in the midterms, the midterms right before Trump was elected, they saw the lowest 
voter turnout in exactly. all of history, so going back all the way to maybe 18, 1820s, 1830s. Right. So these kinds of political and economic crises are, I think, the, what ought to be focused on as opposed to this idea of a foreign conspiracy. Right. Okay. Well, then, you know, and this is all very good. And I want to, I'm really glad you brought that up about 2014. And, you know, Tom Ferguson has been writing a lot about this, that that was the absolute lowest turnout at a time when people were so much in arms. We, and we, we are now coming up to the 2018 midterm elections. Obviously, most people think we're going to see a very big turnout or ah, maybe not. We don't, we don't really know. I should ask what you think about that. But I wanted to go back to really what you're saying about this and that in, in terms of this expressive function or, you know, how it has so little to do with reality. And you just mentioned that it kind of relates to a picture of many Americans of what their society used to promise them and was to them. And in your article, you put it so well by saying that for the Republicans, it's kind of a hearkening back to the the growth of the Eisenhower years and that sort of wonderful period of time when the middle class was created and grew and there was investment culture and you know, a great highway system and everything else. And for liberals, it was, and I love this, Seth Ackerman, you wrote, it was the upright decency of the Jed Bartlett administration. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I mean you see this a lot with uh, with commentators, liberal commentators. You know, people these are people who follow politics very closely. I think that there's a there's a, a sort of narrative of politics. There's a, a certain vision of politics that a lot of liberals have grown up with, which in many ways is a kind of based on a kind of like liberal nationalism in which or or, or just maybe even just patriotism. There's a fundamental, whatever the problems or mistakes that our government has has engaged in in the past, there's like a fundamental decency and legitimacy to the system that a lot of liberals really hold dear. And so as much as they may, uh, you know, denounce and criticize Republican presidents when they're in office, I think underlying that, there's always this sense that the system is fundamentally legitimate. And that was really expressed really visibly, really tangibly in, in that in that show, The West Wing. You know, that was the that was really the ethos of it. There was always the inspiring speech by President Bartlett at the end, you know, that reminds mm-hmm. you why are, you know, this uh, country and this system are, are the greatest in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, the, to, again, I think that having Trump with all his, you know, incredible, obscene vulgarity and, and so on uh, in that office, it feels like a violation. You know, there was a, you know, there's similar things going on uh, before with Republicans. I remember when Clinton was in office, Bill Clinton was in office, you know, Republicans used to talk about him as if he were this sort of unprecedented vulgarian who was defiling the Oval Office. And for them, it wasn't that they wanted a president like Jed Bartlett. They wanted a, they had some image of a president who was kind of like, you know, this old-fashioned father figure. Right. Uh, I remember Fox News criticizing Clinton for not wearing a tie. Uh, in the Oval Office at one point. It's that sort of thing. So each side has their own kind of um, imagined, fantasized image of what a president should be. And uh, Trump is like just a a systematic violation of all of that. Again, you have to ask, what is it that produced Trump? What What is it that allowed a figure like Trump to become president? And really the answer is not Russia. He was not a viable presidential candidate because of Russia. It was a close election, and so you could point to a million different factors. You know, the breeze blew a slightly different direction one day on, on election day, but as, as, the, as the thing that 
tipped it over. But the, the fact that Trump was going to be a competitive presidential candidate didn't come from overseas. Well, we've run out of time, and I want to thank you so much for that really, really prescient and, and pertinent analysis. Thank you so much for shedding light. And, and there's a lot there to, you know, chew on, and I'd love to have you back as you think about this, too, in terms of, let's say, how the Republicans, who were more patrician and more sort of Christian values and the rest of it, have now supported Trump. But that's for another day. And I want to just tell the listeners to go online and look at Jacobin Meg online and look at Seth Ackerman's piece appeared on July 19th called The Expressive Function of the Russia Freakout. And Seth is executive editor of Jackman Magazine. Seth Ackerman, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're tackling that question about Russian meddling. What is Russia? Why is the United States freaking out about it, in more particularly parts of the mainstream media and the Democratic Party? But given that we really want to go beneath the surface, I've invited Hillel Tickton to join us. And Hillel Tickton is the editor of the journal Critique, a journal of socialist theory, He's also the Emeritus Professor of Marxist Studies at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. We're speaking to him in Glasgow. Before that, he was also a professor at the Institute for Soviet and East European Studies in Glasgow. And he lived in the former Soviet Union for years. He's an author of articles on the USSR, the former Soviet Union after the disintegration and many on Marx's political economy and finance capital and the nature of capitalist decline. His books include The Origins of the Crisis in the USSR and Essays on the Political Economy of a Disintegrating System. He's written on much, much more, but that will suffice for now. I just want to welcome you to Jacobin Radio, Phil Tickton. I'm very glad to be here. Well, thank you. So we're talking about the sort of hysteria that has been all over the media, and it's quite interesting because it begs the question of what is Russia today, and that's why I wanted to bring you on. So the United States has returned to Cold War hostility with Russia, and most of the media see Russia as the enemy, and especially it's quite interesting to see the way the political parties in the United States have switched positions because now it is the Democrats. They've always been Cold War liberals and Cold War hawks just so that they could do social programs at home without being called pinkos. For many of the listeners, that's going to hearken into a long gone age. But it really does, as I said, beg the question of what's going on and why this is the issue. So maybe, Hillel, we could start with that and look at what has happened in Russia that would make it once again become the enemy. Well, it's uh, less what's happened in Russia than what's happened elsewhere as it were. Clearly, the uh, Russian state is uh, dictatorial, it's authoritarian, and of course, trade unions arrested, and uh, workers who are organizing can be uh, killed. So it's certainly not a regime which any left-wing person can support. In fact, since uh, Putin and uh, the leadership interact with far-right regimes, it's better to call it a far-right regime. It adds up more than anything else. 
So, having said that, it's not the Soviet Union in arms terms either. If one actually looks at the army, it's a fraction of the size it was in the Soviet Union. The army clearly doesn't have the same Elan, it doesn't have the same ideology, it's got no reason to go anywhere. And that's to say, the ordinary soldiers may well not even fight properly if they were really to be asked to fight against the West. So it's not at all clear what is going on in calling it Cold War. The ideology there, of course, is on the right. It's not on the left. Putting himself as his personal chaplain next door, he guides himself as a Christian. So I mean, there's no left-wing ideology whatsoever. There's no reason for it to advance on the West, effectively. So that it should be an enemy like the Soviet Union makes no sense. You could argue the question in the case of the Soviet Union, but you can't argue in this case, because in military terms, in terms of army marching, they simply can't do it. In one respect, of course, they are important. That's the only respect, and that is in atomic weapons. There's no question they inherited the atomic weapons that were held by the Soviet Union. Whether they have enough research scientists, etc. to keep up, uh, I, have, I have no idea. But it's extremely costly, and for a relatively weak regime, one would ask whether they really have kept up. Can I ask just a question in the middle of that? Because you said that it is a, a right-wing and Christian, at least Putin is, and, and the country presumably as well. And so in terms of what it used to be, it was considered a threat because it represented a different system. This it fits right in very well with the sort of rise of far-right nationalist and so-called populist regimes. And you could even say that most of Eastern Europe, not all of it, but most of it, has regimes even further to the right. So you've settled in on the question of weapons. Is that the reason? Partly. And just to finish it off, because the fact is that if you read the reasons given for taking a hard line to uh, Russia or being very suspicious of it or wanting to do something is because they have atomic weapons, because there really isn't any other satisfactory reason. You can argue, of course, in the, the individual instances, like having poisoned people in Salisbury, Great Britain, or in the case of uh, cyber security, which uh, they've been breaking, you can argue those things, but they're far less important. And that is not the basis for war or a cold war. Certainly a basis, perhaps, for going for in for sanctions, as in the case of the Ukraine or the occupation of the Crimea. That's a case which can certainly be made, but it's not the same thing as a cold war. And the implication of a cold war is that each side would have its atomic weapons ready. And that doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it was highly unlikely during the Cold War that either side would have dropped atomic bombs. Because in the end today, they so developed that if they did do it, there would be no world. And even if the world didn't go under, a large part of it would. It would make no sense to drop it, and both sides knew it. And in fact, in a recent issue of The Economist, they discussed exactly that issue. They point out that there are now discussions between uh, Russia and the United States, or Trump and Putin, around this kind of issue. And what's more important than the most advanced weapons is low-destructive atomic weapons. 
In other words, they've been working on atomic weapons which will not necessarily destroy too much. It's kind of nutty. But anyway, that appears to be the case. Both sides are working on, as it were, small-yield atomic weapons. And that's what they're discussing, what they can drop and not drop, as it were. It doesn't seem likely that either side will ever do that because of the actual danger of it. And any one side that did drop it will almost certainly be hated by the rest of the world. So it doesn't seem likely that it will actually go there. But that appears to be one of the major issues which are being discussed. The other basis of it is effectively that with the end of the Cold War, the whole basis of having an enemy on which the resources of the West or those who are united with the United States, those who are working with the United States, those who are controlled by the United States, are bound, has gone. Right. As long as the Soviet Union was there, there was a clear enemy. And there were reasons to argue that at the time, although I was just very critical of the Soviet Union, I didn't think much of it either. But nonetheless, there were reasons to argue that. It's very hard to see it. However, even if one can't see it, states, Britain and so forth, actually need an enemy. Capitalism needs an enemy, in other words, it needs nationalism, in order to unite the population. Can we just back up for a second, because I want to amplify this point, Hillel Tickton, and that is, this has been a kind of mystery for many, that once the Soviet Union declared, well, first of all, disintegrated, and then under Yeltsin and then Putin, it set itself on the path of a transition to capitalism. You've argued that that transition has been feeble and in some aspects has failed. But on the other side of that, we could go right back to when that happened and why the United States did not try to integrate Russia into the world order the way that it did Eastern Europe and expanded NATO. In fact, did everything to alienate and make Russia even more hostile. And you've just talked about the need for an enemy because the U.S. and as the hegemon and Europe now organizes itself around the need for enemies. And the Soviet Union was a good enemy. <laughs> but now is Russia the same kind of compelling enemy? And you brought up the whole sort of talks over weapons. So I'd like you to kind of put that all together. Well, two things. One is what actually happened and what happened to Russia itself. In fact, the Soviet Union, of course, had close to 300 million people. Uh, Russia has 140 million or thereabouts. So it's less than half the size of what it was. And clearly doesn't have the economic power either. In the period from 1991 down to the present, it's virtually lost much of its industry. In fact, I was looking at the latest IMF report, and they point out that it's, in fact, tending to export very largely, of course, raw materials like oil. And even when it sells industrial goods, they tend to be less sophisticated. And it's selling not to big countries, but to small countries. So in other words, the actual picture, if you look at it, of Russia today as an industrial power almost doesn't exist. It's one of the weakest industrial powers. Usually when such a discussion on Russia takes place, the comparison is made with Italy and it's pointed out that it is inferior to Italy. So in other words, it's not much of a competitor or not much of an enemy to deal with. 
The only thing it really has is atomic weapons. What makes it even worse is the level of productivity has remained low. The level of productivity in the Soviet Union was low. It was expected that if they went over to capitalism, the level of productivity would rise somewhat. In fact, that has remained low. And at one point, it was among the lowest in the world, which at that time was close to South Africa, the level of productivity in South Africa. So it can't compete industrially in the world. There's just no way it can do it unless it changes. The problem which arose in the 90s was that the, the oligarchs took over and basically got hold of the factories and stripped them and then sold the, uh, the machinery and what, whatever they could, leaving not much behind. And then in the ensuing period, you know, after the initial catastrophic decline, which, you know, you can go into more, Russia became an exporter of natural resources, principally oil and gas, and was dependent on it rather than trying to have productive investment at home and restart its industry and everything else. So is that still the case? And maybe you could talk a little bit about why Russia remains weak as an economic power, but is still a military power. Yes, it is the case. If you read the IMF reports on Russia, which come out regularly, at least once a year and more often, you can see that is the case. They constantly make that same point. Infrastructure must be developed. It remains backward. That uh, industry must be invested in. And what they constantly plug is that what is needed in their view is private property. It's perfectly true that down to the present, the level of state property is high. It's curious that they still have nationalized property and under Putin, he he nationalized considerably more. But he really didn't have any alternatives since otherwise these entities would have gone out of existence. And uh, recently they've been doing a certain amount of privatization again. However, it's still limited, and I don't have the exact fear, but it's at least 60% of the economy would be nationalized. The IMF constantly argues that that is wrong, and that's the basis of uh, why they're not able to develop. I don't think that's true. I think the problem which IMF also makes is that there's very low productivity. Now, the IMF obviously believes that if you have privatized concerns, then because there could be competition, which does not follow, it doesn't follow that there will be competition. But if you have competition, they expect productivity to rise. Well, it might to a limited degree, but I think that would be very limited. What we're talking about is the way in... uh, In the Soviet Union and subsequently, there was no incentive for the working class to work, very little incentive. The working class was atomized, really was atomized. Of course, the trade unions didn't mean anything very much. And even today, it's also true, although the trade unions, which are not quite as uh, meaningless, nonetheless, they aren't able to organize or do very much. So the position for the working class remains one of being controlled and not able to uh, raise the salaries very much, etc. Well, maybe we should say here, too, and I'll let you finish your point, because 
because it was a big question at the time, and Putin was was wildly popular when he came in because he was the anti-Yeltsin, and it meant that wages, back wages, were going to be paid, whereas there had been six months to a year of arrears during the Yeltsin period, and the standard of living fell catastrophically, and much of the population lived below subsistence. That's changed. And a lot of people said that in the period thereafter, maybe in the first, let's say, 10 years, when they were so dependent on oil and gas revenues that oil prices were artificially high to sort of subsidize Russia so that it wouldn't collapse into warring factions and instability, where stability seems to be the key. And that was also the key under the Soviet Union. But now you've got Putin, who is the right-wing nationalist, I guess you could say, and we've imposed a lot of sanctions. The United States has imposed sanctions. So Hillel Tickton, the issue is that even though being an oil-dependent state uh, allowed the standard of living to rise, even though it didn't do much for the future, and you're talking about the low productivity of workers, which is still very low, the sanctions, in a way, even though they're counterproductive in bringing Putin to heal in terms of what he does internationally and with weapons, it does strengthen him by allowing him to galvanize the population using nationalism against the rest of the world that sees them as an enemy, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, uh, that's quite true. You're quite right. Under Putin, which again is something which seems to be overlooked, the standard living did rise, as you pointed out. In fact, that's almost certainly why he was put in. It wasn't just the oil, because uh, it also meant a clear change in running the economy. As I mentioned, he nationalized quite a few firms and began to run the economy in a, in a less exploitative way, if one can call it that. And with the rise in the oil prices, as you're pointing out, he was able to pay more. It's true, the standard of living had dropped, as you said, catastrophically from uh, 1989 down to the time that he came in. Yes, as a result, of course, even if people may not have liked him, they preferred it to the previous regime. And one has to ask what really happened there, because technically Putin was put there by uh, Berezovsky and Yeltsin. Right. And as soon as he came in, he turned against them. And Yeltsin died, of course, but Berezovsky fled to Britain where he died or was killed. So... It's clear there was a shift within the elite. What we don't know is who really does govern, because it's not believable it's put in by himself. And uh, it's clear the U.S. government thinks that too, for which reason they are uh, sanctioning, what they were intending to sanction, 200 uh, oligarchs and senior ministers in Russia. It's supposed to come on this year, I think, in the United States. So what you're talking about is the taking of power of a particular grouping within the old elite. Uh, most people think that there was a section of the, the old KGB was actually involved, which isn't uh, very difficult to believe. And we know, if you read, for instance, The Economist, that practically all departments today, departments of state, it doesn't matter what it is, transport or whatever, are run today by the secret police. So it's a very particular regime, I think, of this overall transition period which exists, which is highly unstable. 
This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Hillel Tickton. So do you think that these sanctions, in a way, are this perverse way that the U.S. is helping it to become more stable because it allows Putin to at least organize against the rest? I know that sounds kind of almost conspiratorial, but on the other hand, it's really difficult to understand given the way that Putin is. And Putin is dependent on and, and even beholden to Trump, and Trump and his circle are very important to Putin, but so is uh, Trump in the same way, beholden in a way independent on Putin. And so given how hostile Trump's actual policy rather than his rhetoric has been toward Russia, this is a very difficult thing to understand. Do you see it in terms of perhaps like forgetting Putin and Trump, but policymakers trying to figure out a way to create a more stable world that still sees, you know, that creates this adversarial position so that they can continue manufacturing arms? I know that sounds nuts, but how do you see it? Yes, yes, that's true. What has effectively happened, the point was actually made to me in Russia, but I think you were present uh, at the conference we attended in 99 in in Russia, Mm -hmm. that the uh, West will not allow the oligarchs or the call them the top executives or the uh, the people who run massive firms, big firms, or potentially multinational firms in Russia to enter the world arena in the same way that we have the multinationals of uh, the United States, like Google, Apple, or car companies, or whatever that they won't actually allow them. That is a real problem because it is true that if a country wants to become crucial in the world economy or simply in capitalism as a whole or develop, they certainly have to do it internationally because it's not just a question of the market, it's the nature of production and being able to absorb what exists in other countries and, I mean, um, intellectually, and the United States has managed to do that. China would like to do it, and, in, and it has been turned down in a whole series of countries, in the United States, Switzerland, Germany, etc. China's gone, has, has done it to a limited degree, but it's been turned down several times. Now, the grounds given are security, but it, sometimes it's laughable, the kind of company that's involved. In fact, you can see that in the case of Trump when he... Uh, when he actually talks about security and he protects. It's nothing to do with security. He simply wants to have a form of economic protection. And that's being done against China. Now, that was done against a rising or possibly rising Russia. They weren't able to enter into the world arena. If a firm can't do that and has to remain within its relatively small market and relatively small production base, it can't develop. And that doesn't just mean that it makes less profits. It means that its capitalism itself is stunted, something which they know, of course. And that's their grievance. That's the basic grievance that existed from the beginning. Well, the essential point is that for Russia to develop capitalism, its own capitalism or if there's only one form of capitalism, but its own country, its own industry, it really has to be able to have a world market and be able to have branches in different parts of the world, as happens with, say, Germany, 
if you look at Germany and Japan, they have uh, their uh, branches in the United States. They have their branches in Britain and France and various parts of the world, including China. And in fact, the uh, relationship between Germany and China, China is very, very close now. But they wouldn't allow Russia to do that, which uh, meant that it couldn't really develop its industry. And as the, the oligarchs simply robbed it, and it's ended up in this very weak position. It's weak in terms of its army. It's weak in terms of its industry. The fact that the West is trying to turn it into the enemy has more to do with the nature of capitalism, which requires an enemy in order to maintain its own nationalism, in order to maintain loyalty to a system which actually exploits it. Hilla, this is fascinating, and I want to ask just a final question that kind of, you know, maybe will help our listeners understand what you're saying, and that is that does this sort of give you some form of explanation as to why there have been the poisoning and killings of oligarchs abroad, uh, maybe even the accidental, you know, the Novacek poisonings? You don't really have to go into that specific one, but eliminating people abroad who, or oligarchs who, plundered uh, Soviet resources, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the annexation of Crimea and essentially eastern Ukraine. Maybe you could just kind of put that into some context into this larger picture of the weakness of Russia and why it feels the need to do that. Yeah, Russia is inherently stable, as I said, low productivity, relatively low wages, although the IMF does include Russia in the high-income countries. And it needs to be able to retain what it has. And uh, when the Soviet Union broke up, the way it broke up didn't allow a breaking up in economic terms. So, for instance, Ukraine and, and Russia were, are closely related economically. They're, they're also a language, of course. One quarter of the population of Ukraine are Russian-speaking, and the whole population basically speaks Russian as well as Ukrainian, although Ukrainian is the main language. But uh, the eastern Ukraine was integrated into the Russian uh, industrial framework. And, of course, the Russian fleet was in the Crimea. Russia was effectively, when it came to being as a separate entity, which it had never been, as it were, in history, uh, um, had lost its, um, much of its access to the Black Sea and, uh, of course, its ports on the, in the north were also limited. So there was a, obviously a drive within it to, to take it. That doesn't excuse them. There, there, there's no excuse for a country marching into another country and just taking what is there. It explains what was the dynamic involved in the country. In, in regard to the, the poisoning, I, I have no understanding of why that happened. It looks like either the, the FSB is nuts or uh, you, you have some kind of internal rivalry of some kind. People have talked of uh, gangsters. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to understand why anybody would, would want to do it. And in, any time the issue is discussed on TV, uh, someone will pop up or a Russian will pop up and say, but that is not the rules of the game. You don't do that after you've uh, released somebody 
you cross sides and you, and you let the person of jail and send him to the West, then you leave him alone because the person who comes to your side has the same problem. So you, you don't want uh, both sides to continue shooting each other, so, uh, which uh, is, uh, is what one would expect. It's hard to understand what actually happened there, I think. I, I think in, in Britain it certainly seems like it, that the government, which is very weak, as everybody knows and has been constantly now said on TV, could rejoice in being able to find an enemy and try and turn the whole population against Russia rather than looking at uh, the failure of the present government, obviously. Well, that didn't last very long, in fact. But they did use it against the opposition, the left-wing opposition. They used it very strongly because Corbyn, the leader of the uh, opposition, refused to take that simple line which basically says that Russia is an enemy and God knows if he can, if they can poison somebody living here, how many other people they could poison here, which is the implication of that. So, yes, it's, it's certainly been used because uh, the use of an enemy which could unite your own people in a nationalist uh, surge, as it were, is an ideal instrument and it was certainly used in Britain. It, it's now collapsed, I think. Well, that's very much what it looks like. In spite of the fact that Russia, is, uh, as is now governed, is quite awful, it's, it's dictatorial, and anybody in the left, if they actually went there and did anything, would probably end up in jail. There's no, and there's no way one can come near doing anything but being critical of it. In spite of that, one has to say it is not the main enemy. Right. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there, but you've raised some very critical questions that nobody else seems to be asking or even looking at in terms of trying to explain why, you know, Russia once again is the enemy and yet why Putin and Trump seem to need each other. But I want to thank you so much for shedding light, at least as far as you have. And thank you. I've been speaking with Hillel Tikton, Professor Emeritus of Soviet Studies and Marxist Theory and the editor of Critique. And if you go online and look at the Critique Journal of Socialist Theory, you'll see that it regularly addresses these questions. Hillel, thanks for staying up in Scotland and helping us to understand what thank seems you. to be un un understandable. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm -hmm.